Hello and welcome to the next episode of Clustering Insights, focusing on the life sciences sector. My name is Chris Walters. I'm the investor developer lead for the life sciences group. And today I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Pete Wilder, the head of property for Oxford Sciences Innovation. So hi, Pete. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Thank you. How are you doing today? Yeah, really well. Yeah, getting used to the next new normal. Yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really looking forward to having a conversation with you about OSI and, and what you've been up to. I thought it would be a useful starting point for those that do know you or those that have, have heard of, of OSI for the first time. If you could just give a bit of an overview on your role, um, who OSI are, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, yeah. Hi. My name is Pete Wilder. Yes, I'm head of property at OSI. OSI is a university investment fund that was set up back in in 2015. Probably the most important element of it is that we were set up in partnership with the university. And so it's very clear that our um, goals are completely aligned in terms of creating these world changing companies. Back in 2015, we sorted out this partnership agreement. We raised 600 million pounds from um, a group of global investors, some of whom hadn't invested in Oxford ever before, but a group that were aligned with our goals. I guess in summary, um, since then, we've now created 85 companies. Um, We thought we were going to create around three or four a year and and actually we we created more like between 15 and, and 20 so the growth of the companies or the number of companies has been incredible but at the same time the quality and the success of those companies has been really amazing as well so it's just for me it's just been an an incredible journey i guess taking a quick step back why this sort of setup is so special is that the university's just got this incredible track record and brand all of its own, you know, a thousand years of of amazing academia, um, some great ideas coming out of the university all the time. But I guess what has perhaps been missing is that connection to an investor network and a network of entrepreneurs that then can help you create the full ecosystem. And so that's what we we've brought to the table. We can connect companies to the right co-investors to suit their needs. And we can also bring in entrepreneurs and residents into OSI that can go into the university, sort of look for those really interesting ideas and, and then look to get on board and build the company from there. So it's been a really, really interesting journey. I mean, that's amazing. Not only the amount of money that you raised day one and sort of the different um different places where that came from, the interest that you've had, but also, as you said, that the growth in the number of companies that you've been able to invest in based on those first expectations. And for those that are listening that haven't seen the the infamous um, charts that OSI have created that looks at the amount of companies that you've invested in running sort of left to right on a timeline and and how um, your introduction at a certain point really acted as a catalyst for that growth. I'm sure you can get your hands on it if you are listening and you haven't seen it before, but it, it is impressive in terms of how much of an impact you've had in that sense in terms of the Oxford's ecosystem. And I assume that you're continuing to invest and, and look at companies um, in and around the Oxford ecosystem and, you know, You've had 85, but you expect many more, I assume, Pete. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think I think it was this quarter, um, Oxford University Innovations, who we work with very closely, sort of posted that this quarter we'd hit the 200th sort of spin-out company from Oxford. I think the other stat that I heard that there's been more investment in Oxford in the last five years than is combined in any of the years before that. So, I mean, there's been a real Mm. step change in the investment in, in Oxford. And I guess that's translated into more interest in Oxford generally. Um, So it's of national interest, of international interest. And for me as a property person, actually, it's been fascinating to see that change over the course of two or three years. Yeah, and there's absolutely no doubt from the conversations that we're having in particular with, we're both occupiers and investors, obviously, Oxford is is right at the heart of um, the Golden Triangle, clearly, but there's the, one of the mainstays of um, the opportunity in the UK, and I, I can't see that changing, as you're, as you're saying. I mean, in, in terms of the companies that OSI are backing along, alongside the the university, you know, what what type of companies are they? Obviously, this is a, a life sciences podcast. Arguably, it should be an innovation knowledge-based podcast because it's not just life sciences that you look at either, is it? I guess we've got four sectors that we track. Um, we've got deep tech, we've got health tech, we've got um, AI and software, and we've got life sciences. And all of those have very different requirements from from a property perspective. Uh, for the purpose of this podcast, you know, it's it's probably important to note that by far our biggest challenge is around is around those that are in the life science sector. Um, it's the sector that we've invested most money in. It's the invest the sector where we've seen the most. Uh, the biggest increase in valuation, um, but it's also the sector where we have the biggest cha- challenge from a real estate perspective. AI and software companies can more or less, um, you know, work from any commercial space. Um, deep tech companies tend to require industrial buildings um, that they where they can uh, test point things to the point of explosion. But then, you know, the requirement for for wet labs is something that you know we just haven't we've really struggled to um sort of replicate so it's a good subject topic for the podcast we'll come back to this sort of the physical bit in a second but i was going to say in terms of those companies and obviously there has been as you just said sort of a focus around the life sciences subsector do you envisage that continuing over sort of the next three to five years in terms of your focus as osi or um sort of the, con- the convergence between science and technology is is blurring lines that were already blurred, to be honest. But how how are you seeing it at the front line as as such? I mean, I think at, at the moment the the key focus is in life sciences. So, I mean, during during the period of 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 this coronavirus pandemic, it's been very exciting to be part of an ecosystem that has been playing such an active role, and it is the life science companies that have been to the fore. Vaxitech is one of our companies um, that is the company behind the Oxford vaccine. So it's been it's been amazing to see, to observe that. Um, also Spy Biotech, another life science vaccine company based out of Oxford. Um, but then of course, we've got other companies that aren't perhaps exclusively life science, but are connected to life science. So we've got um, Oxford Nanoimaging, for example, that's been playing a role in terms of the testing processes and, and technology. So there's lots of elements that are interwoven in this. And I guess it's really interesting from the perspective of an, of an investor mm. to be able to see these group of 85 or companies 
and to see how they can interrelate. So, you know, what happens if you put the world's best microscope into the world's best vaccine company, for example, you know, and how does that create a marginal gain? So I think the life science bit has been front and centre of what we've been doing. It's been very well marketed. Over the coming years, I think I think the supply of companies coming through is just going to increase. We probably need to do a bit of work ourselves on on how that might map out from a property perspective, because I think that would really help, um, you know, the investor landscape to kind of get comfortable about life sciences and, you know, science buildings and help them commit to buildings in the area. You know, I, I think our, our thoughts uh, as a kind of a, as, as the fund is that I think we've said by 2025, we expect to have invested about a billion pounds in, in Oxford companies. And on the basis that we are only, you know, we seek co-investors, we expect those co-investors to bring in a further £2 billion into the ecosystem. So you think about the the power of that money, um, that all those companies need people and those people are going to need um, space to to grow their companies. I think from a property perspective, again, it's it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, and so it's just... Focusing on the on the property side and the physical real estate, I mean, as you as you outlined earlier, even under the life sciences definition, there's such a broad spectrum of of different users and physical requirements in terms of space, and it, it's something we've touched on on this on this podcast um, previously. But really keen to get your insight in terms of what those physical real estate needs are. You know, how does it differ? between those those different subsectors um just in terms of their requirements whether that's office wet lab facilities or or industrial where are you seeing the the highest demand from the companies that you're engaging with in the oxford market at the moment so i guess starting at the point of lowest demand software and ai companies almost like any other office user right now a lot of them have decided that they can do what they they need to do working from home for the majority. We run our own co-working space in in our uh, headquarter building in Oxford. And because it's not a wet lab facility, most of the companies in there have have a um, an AI or computer science background. And like everyone else, you know, I mean, yes, companies love to huddle around a whiteboard, but more or less those companies have been able to to manage working from home and, uh, and and will do for now. The deep tech companies, yeah, there is good growth out there, but there's also a reasonable selection of standard industrial buildings that are pretty cheap to rent um, comparatively, and they're easy to adapt. And I think there aren't any burning issues in, in that sector. It's the life science buildings that are the biggest challenge. For us, it's twofold, I think. Number one, You know, office buildings are pretty expensive to repurpose as a lab. You know, I guess there are layers to what a lab means. But, you know, for a a CL2 lab, yeah, it's expensive to retrospectively fit out an office building as a lab. Often, and we were just doing one at the moment on the Oxford Science Park, we've had to build in uh, a goods lift. We've put more plant on the roof. It's got more power, drainage, all those things that um, add a level of complexity to to what you do as alongside the cost. So, you know, if you're going to put chimneys on the roof, you need to go for planning, for example. From our perspective, in terms of delivery of lab space, that's that's one thing. The supply of buildings in Oxford is is woefully low. 
And I guess it's because there is a, you know, Oxford has not been a, a kind of big commercial centre. There are a number of companies that have had their sort of corporate, sort of regional HQs in, in Oxford. But as a science and tech ecosystem, it's still just getting off the ground. And therefore, landlords have not been of the mindset to be delivering wholesale, you know, speculative developments that are coming on board to meet the demand that's coming through. So it's a, there's a combination of challenges around life science buildings. It's that combination of, of specification, build cost, time, and the absence of, of speculative development. And just in terms, you know, just on picking on that point around the absence of speculative development, I don't think anyone would disagree with you in terms of um, the lack of supply versus demand that is in Oxford today. And, you know, based on the numbers that we've just talked about, whether that's yourself doing one and other actors doing up to further two billion pounds of investment, that's only going to go one way. But what do you think is the that main barrier or what one of the barriers to achieving speculative development in the Oxford market? I mean, I think that there is that there's that disconnect that we see quite clearly that you've got you've got to overcome whereby traditional landlords looking at conventional leases still looking you know and, and and looking at conventional investment valuations you know looking to attract established companies with strong trading profitable track records um taking long leases and you know looking after the building making minimal structural changes and then our companies that basically have no track record they're not going to be profitable for a very long time mm. um they might only need the building for two or three years and they're going to you know, they are going to make significant changes in order to make it suitable for science. And I guess it's easy for us to take the view because we are very much invested in this area. Yeah. But we have had to take the view, right, we will build the space, we will fit it out, the companies will come. And if a company um, grows out of that space in two or three years, either it outgrows it or the company fails, we, we feel comfortable that there will be an army of companies coming up behind that will fit into that space. And so the buildings that we've done are, are life science, are suitable for life science, um, but they're also um, adaptable. And so we can, we, can, we can deploy those buildings for various life science uses. And I think that's probably the biggest barrier um, because yes. otherwise, you know, our, our companies simply are not of the mindset to to look at us, look at a site three years out and sign up to a, you know, a, a pre-let on a sort of 15 year lease term. Yeah. And it, in that sense, it is a completely different mindset reflecting the nature of the companies that you're you're dealing with and investing in. So that that completely makes sense. And I, I suppose it's part of it as well. You know, just touching back on what you said around understanding the, those businesses and their physical requirements. You know, from your perspective, is that has that got to be the starting point? So, if you're if you're looking at this sector either for the first time or you've been doing it for many years, understanding actually what these businesses need to cater for their their growth as a science business is is the is the first step. Yeah, I com- completely agree. I mean, I think anything you're investing in, you want to make sure you understand it inside out, right? So I- investors, developers, there needs to be that understanding of the ecosystem and what's required. And actually, there is a really good group of of people who are expert in this area. 
Glenn Crocker, for example. We're a client of Glenn's. We've worked with him on a couple of opportunities in and around Oxford, uh, and including the, the um, uh, some of your previous podcast um, interviewees. We've we've worked with them. We've worked with them as well. I think there is there is the expertise around to to make sure that you are properly informed about um, about the market and about the requirements of companies that will potentially save you from making some quite expensive mistakes. One of the things we know about a life science building is that typically you need better slab to slab heights, you need delivery access, ideally you have a goods lift, you need the ability to to put extra M&E in there to deal with, you know, cooling and drainage and power and all those all those sorts of things. And and actually the group is not that large in the UK right now, but there is a group that would be able to advise you on, you know, all those all those areas. So that that would be my advice rather than taking on a um, a potentially expensive failure, just make sure that you you do your due diligence, get the right team on board as well. That's great, really useful. And and um, looking ahead in terms of, uh, we talked a bit about um, OSI and, and looking ahead, but I assume it's focus for you is to continue to work closely with the university, identify great companies that you can invest in and, and help, you know, help play your part in terms of providing space that those companies can can be housed in and also sort of propel the future growth of, of the sector for life sciences in Oxford. Yes, our core business is investing in, in these world-changing companies and we're seeing um, great results from that at the moment and it's really exciting. Whilst we need to remain involved in property, um, we'd rather not keep taking 15-year leases um, in order to sort of break even, but by doing so, you know, just give oxygen to our companies to grow. Um, we're looking forward to a world in Oxford where sites like, for example, the Oxford University LNG um, partnership on Begbrook and Osney Mead comes to fruition and the pipeline um, starts to grow there, that Harwell continues its planned 1.5 million square feet of of expansion, that the Science Park and the Business Park, you know, both continue to deliver buildings that are suitable for science. So so I think great change is coming. And I think um, as these companies grow, it's going to be great to see the whole of the Oxford and the Oxfordshire ecosystems grow grow along with it, not just with science companies, but with a whole range of companies from investors to service providers, um, you know, professional services, the whole the whole range. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Pete. Really enjoyed um, chatting to you and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.